As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi everybody, just a note from me, Rhiannon, to say that my new supplements company, Hurrah, is finally here. It's taken years to get this off the ground. Retrition Plus is evidence-based, rooted in science, focused on you, and we offer vitamin D sprays, folic acid spray, and a vegan multivitamin. So head over to retritionplus.com for supplements you can finally trust. Hello, thank you so much for tuning into this week's Food for Thought, a podcast that's on a mission to equip you all with the evidence-based advice that you need to live and breathe a healthy lifestyle. I'm Rhiannon Lambert, a registered nutritionist, Sunday Times bestselling author and founder of the Harley Street Clinic Retrition and Evidence-Based Supplements Retrition Plus. In each episode of the 12 episodes, I'll be joined by guests, all of whom are experts in their field. So together, we can learn fact from fiction, empower ourselves to become the healthiest and happiest versions of ourselves with trusted expert advice. We know the benefits of regular physical activity are indisputable. And exercise is, of course, a key element of a healthy and balanced lifestyle. We know this, but... How much consideration are you giving to your nutrition? Now, I think this comes into play, especially when you're thinking about perhaps long distance training, because how we fuel can ultimately perhaps elevate our goals and transform results. So the conversation today, we touched on so many, so many knowledge bombs and incredible information here with Faye Townsend on Food for Thought. She's our very own nutrition, registered sports nutritionist. So we discuss how to fuel your long distance fitness and reach peak performance. Hello, Faye. Hi, Ree. How are you doing? Oh, I'm good, thank you. Well, it's snowing actually at the time I'm recording this, which is bizarre, but it's so amazing to finally get to talk to you. Of course, for everyone listening, Faye works in the Retrition Clinic and we just need a good catch up, don't we? Definitely, definitely. It's been way too long. (laughs) It has been way too long. So I think we'll kick off with, we know the fact that, I mean, you wouldn't set off on a long drive without putting fuel in the car. That's quite a good analogy. And obviously, working as a sports nutritionist, you know the importance of 
you know, fueling your body. So what would your overall philosophy be on, you know, nutrition for performance, I suppose? Yeah, definitely. I think every single one of us, whether we're kind of an athlete or not, we benefit from nourishing our body with all the nutrients just to make sure that yeah, our body and our mind is really working at its absolute optimum. And on top of this, when we think about active people, when we think about athletes, not only do they have these same requirements, but they also have the additional demands that come from the kind of the intensity, the frequency, the type of exercise or sport that they're actually doing. So kind of any training or or competition in in any sport really is very taxing and demanding on the body and mind. So it's really essential that we kind of get the key and the right types and amounts of energy, macronutrients, micronutrients, hydration to make sure that we're meeting these demands. Because Ultimately, if we don't, then there's going to be a lot of compromise. There's going to be compromise on kind of like the mindset, the mental functioning, focus, concentration, body composition, mood, sleep, energy, recovery, um, things like risk of injury as well, fatigue and kind of a hot topic at the moment is something called REDS as well. So relative energy deficiency. So if you're basically not giving your body the nutrients that it needs and the energy that it needs, it's going to compromise on the bodily function as well, which can be really damaging for health. So, yeah, if we don't get it right, there is some serious consequences that might come with underfueling yourself as an athlete or an active person. Absolutely. And I think you see that in the clinic a lot. And I think even our eating disorder team actually encompass a lot of this, you know, over exercising or exercising and not fueling correctly can very quickly spiral, as you said, into something like reds or serious, very serious health consequences. So let's delve into some of the myths then, you know, the nitty gritty stuff, because I think a lot of people talk about these things without understanding the context and the first would be carb loading and potentially why it's not for everyone but equally where may it have a place yeah really really good question and I think I'm not exactly sure when this recording is going to be released but we have the London Marathon coming up in in April time Um, and not only this I mean marathon season happens kind of all throughout the summer period as well so kind of if you're kind of training for an event like this then carb loading is probably something that you have come across but like you said it's not something that absolutely every sport needs to be considering so I guess as a bit of context as a bit of background carbohydrates are the body and the mind's preferred form of energy when it comes to movement it's really versatile so it's used all different intensities and basically the higher the intensity but then also the longer the duration of the exercise the more carbohydrates that the body will be using up The thing is that when we think about our body, we only have a a certain amount of storage of these carbohydrates. We call this glycogen. Therefore, when we're exercising for a prolonged period of time or we're exercising at a very high intensity, we can kind of really start to deplete this. And when those carbohydrate stores are depleted, that's when you'll get that feeling of kind of like hitting the wall. I'm sure if there's any endurance athletes or endurance, I say the term athletes and I really just mean anyone that's active competing training for a goal um so yeah anyone that's maybe running an endurance or cycling an endurance event they've probably heard about that experience of hitting the wall and that's really when our carbohydrate levels have started to deplete and yeah you're going to start to feel fatigued you're probably going to feel brain fog so 
The idea behind carb loading is to try and prevent that from happening. So to go into the event or go into the race by having those optimal levels of carbohydrates. So it's about there's a few different protocols when it comes to carbohydrate loading, which I can definitely walk through. But I would say when it comes to carbohydrate loading, we only really need to be considering this if we're running or we're cycling or we're doing a form of endurance event where those glycogen stores are likely to be depleted and this will be dependent on the individual but we generally say around 70 to 90 minutes of endurance exercise is really the point where we might start to see that happening so if you're running for a 30 minute run then actually this is not really necessary but if you're kind of running over that 70 minute mark then this is something that you might need to start considering if you are trying to optimize your performance and um, so carbohydrate loading is something that you do in the run-up to an event there's a few different protocols um over the years this is slightly changed but more recently it's really only maybe looking at the the 36 to 48 hours before an event where you'd start to increase your carbohydrate stores um it used to be maybe a much longer period there was kind of different tapering strategies as well but yeah generally the couple of days before the event we want to start thinking about switching our priorities over to the carbohydrates because as i mentioned before they're really the the main fuel source for this type of event so I guess one of the myths that come with carbohydrate um, is around just eating a big bowl of pasta before um, when actually it's not really about just eating as much carbohydrates as possible. It's just about switching your priorities. So having a larger proportion of your food and your intake coming from carbohydrates rather than things like your proteins and your fats just for that short period of time. Yeah, absolutely. I think that was so well explained because I think for a lot of people, they, they don't realize how methodical it is and how the timing is everything. And as you said, you don't need to be doing it for more than that time window. And yeah, it used to be actually, I think when I first went to university, I think the window was longer. And I do think it's not, it's not that much of a recess. It must be quite a recent change, actually. But when we wrote the Fueling Fitness ebook, um, so for everyone listening, Faye pretty much gave me all the guidance in that and wrote loads of that in the Sports Fueling Fitness book on the Retrition website. So that's an ebook you can get. But it's so interesting to learn about how these macronutrients fuel our body. And that's why I find it so bizarre in the world of um, low carb diets and um, giving up carbs forever, because not only do they fuel glycogen, you know, they feed our gut bacteria, they play such a role. And for anyone that is listening to fuel them, let's get a little bit more methodical, because this is what sports nutrition is all about. So are you likely to require, is it 6 to 12 grams of carbohydrate times body weight for endurance? Is that the rough calculation for people to write down? So get a notepad, everyone listening. <laughs> um, yeah, so I guess when we're thinking about sports nutrition, like you said, it is a little bit more methodical. Like when we think about general nutrition, we don't really need to get into the specifics of it. Whereas when you do have these additional demands, carbohydrates, protein, energy, um, whatever the macronutrient is, then there is maybe a little bit more attention to detail needed. Don't get me wrong, like there is definitely ways of doing this without having to calculate every single thing. Um, but 
but kind of having a rough guide of what your requirements are can be helpful just to make sure that you're not potentially under fueling yourself and like we talked about earlier getting some of the negative consequences associated with that um, the amount will really depend on the individual in terms of the intensity of the exercise they're doing the frequency of the exercise that they're doing um, what their goals are as well um, but yeah the, the demands of someone that's training for competing in an endurance event yeah it totally could be up to 12 grams of carbohydrate per body weight um in kilograms um so like you said six to 12 probably the lower end um during training and then during that carb load phase and um, going up to 10 to 12 although what i would say is this is not something that you should just kind of jump into because Going, going from maybe three grams um, to 12 grams, and um, that's going to cause some serious stress on the gut. So really important that it's kind of a more gradual approach. You do this maybe alongside a, a sports nutritionist to help you get that as well, because trying to get 12... And lots of water. Yeah, yeah. Trying to get 12 grams of carbohydrates per kilogram, that could be 600, 700, 800 grams of carbohydrates in a day. To get that purely from whole food um, is a really, really difficult thing. Um, so, yeah, that's definitely something to think about as well when it comes to if you are getting those or needing those higher requirements, how would you actually eat and drink yeah. that? such a sensible approach exactly never make a change overnight and this is why we have you in the clinical sports nutritionists need to be there because I think a lot of people underestimate the demands of the body when you change your diet um you know risks of becoming deficient in other areas once you prioritize one particular macronutrient and I, I'm afraid I see it in the fitness industry I'm sure you do fail a lot of hype about high protein low carb um you know shouting all sorts of um rhetorics around and I think there's no understanding really sadly with a lot of these personal trainers that dish out these plans the understanding of how the fuel needs to be built up in the body gradually like you said and what about um a lot of people talk about low uh, GI diets so low glycemic index and for people listening that means um slower release of blood sugars um and what about plant sources of I guess carbohydrates and how about opt-in for GI foods yeah, no, really, really good question. And this is a question that I often have with my clients as well is that I guess we, what we've got to think about when we think about sports nutrition is some of the things that we might suggest might, in a, in a way, kind of contradict general health advice because being a healthy athlete is of course about getting all the key nutrients uh, an everyday person would need as well things like your low gi your high fiber really to support the gut health but then because as an athlete you have these additional demands to get all your carbohydrate requirements from low gi foods really high fiber really fill in foods it's going to be super difficult because yeah that's a lot of load on the gut um i mean i'd be super impressed if you could get those high levels of carbohydrates purely from whole grains and um, you'd be feeling very full very quickly and actually being able to meet your demands as an athlete is just as important for your health as including the kind of i guess like the quote-unquote healthy foods like your low gi foods um so yes it's important to get low gi foods as an athlete to support your gut health but actually you might also need the higher GI carbohydrates as well so your lower fiber your higher sugar carbohydrates as well to help you meet the demands of your training but then also considering around your training as well so if you're eating high fiber 
carbohydrates around mm. your training. Like you said, those high fiber carbohydrates are very slow releasing. They're really good for our gut health, but having those too close to exercise, that could actually cause a few issues. Um, yeah. I'm sure you've probably all heard of things like runner's gut before where kind of urgency to go to the toilet, feeling nausea it's when you Paula are It's the Paula Radcliffe. Running. Isn't it, Faye? <laughs> yeah, everyone's heard Paula that Radcliffe. story. I think a lot of people, yeah. yeah, the Paula Radcliffe story, needing to go in the side of the race. <laughs> Absolutely. And having fibre too close to exercise could cause some of those issues. And also when we're thinking about exercise, we basically want to give our body the quickest source of energy possible that is able to be delivered to our muscles. So actually having lower fibre, higher sugar carbohydrates in and around exercise is really important. So I would say that as, as an athlete, as an active person, it's important to get both, both the low GI and the high GI. It's all about context and timing. And this is where food is so much more than, I mean, there's a great public health message at the moment. We know people need to have more whole grains and more slow releasing carbohydrates in public health nutrition. But if you are an athlete, please do not take that as your, you know, school of thought. Like Faye just said, you need to have a mix of both. What's more readily available faster within the body compared to the slow releasing carbs that you may need on another day. So let's part carbs and talk protein because I feel like you can't have a sports nutrition conversation without protein. It's funny, Faye, because I was looking at a lot of research. Um, obviously, when we did the science of nutrition, you very kindly uh, pre-fred the sports nutrition section for me. And it was so interesting, the claims as well out there on protein at the moment in the fitness industry. So I think it's the NHS guidance at the moment. It's around 0.75 grams, isn't it, per um, kilo of body weight. But I hear some personal trainers again on Instagram shouting, you need 2.5 grams. What is the amount of protein that you'd recommend for an athlete versus public? Good, good question. And yeah, there's so much hype over protein. And <laughs> don't get me wrong, like protein is so, so, so important. But I think sometimes the, the levels that are recommended are probably much higher than what the majority of people actually need. Again, as a, as, no matter kind of what you sport, you will need more protein than someone that's more sedentary. So 0.75 grams for any active person is certainly not enough. Um, the, again, it all comes down to the type, the, the duration, the intensity of your sport. So um, I guess something that I've come across before as well, working with endurance athletes, is they don't feel like they need that protein quite as much. Um, so often, actually, I work with a lot of endurance athletes where actually their protein levels are way too low. But the thing is, even endurance athletes, again, still have a higher demand of protein. Like, even though they're not in the gym trying to build muscle mass and get as big as possible or as strong as possible, there is still a very taxing um, demand on, on kind of protein when they've been going out for a long run. So, um, I mean, if we think about it, we have the two different things that are going on. We have the fact that when you're running, your muscle fibers will be tearing. So there's still a need to kind of repair and replace those muscle tissues. But then we also have kind of more of like the stress demand on things like our mitochondria. So for those that people that don't know, mitochondria is basically like the powerhouse that we have within our cells that produces our energy in order for us to be able to actually then go and run and contract our muscles. So there's a big demand there to make sure that we have the proteins in order to help repair and optimize our mitochondrial function as well. So no matter kind of what your sport is, there is a demand for that protein. Um, 
again, we pro- we definitely don't need the levels that you kind of you mentioned in terms of maybe what is sometimes being shouted out, like above mm. two grams per kilogram of body weight. For for probably endurance athletes, we're probably looking at around 1.2, maybe 1.6. Um, if you're maybe more weight focused, more weightlifting focused, that number could go up to two yeah. grams, maybe even higher. Um, but generally not really much more than that is needed. And this is why you should speak to a sports nutritionist for your nutritional information or someone that knows a little bit more what they're talking about. Or you can get our ebook. Because to be honest with you, I'm just fed up, Faye, of seeing it on social media everywhere and in magazines, every, everything. It's always more, 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 more protein. I don't think people realize that it's not necessary, but it can also have a negative effect as well if, if you have too much, and especially on the kidneys, I think, for excretion. But okay, meals and snacks. So timings of protein. I love this because I remember writing my first book and it changed just as I got the deadline. It used to be that you had to fuel um, within a certain time window after a workout. But now is it more about synthesis throughout the day? Yeah, no. Um, I guess if we're talking about protein still, um, when it comes to what we call that muscle protein synthesis, so kind of the the rebuilding and the repair. So when we eat those protein containing foods, they're broken down into kind of the amino acids, which are the key building blocks. And our muscles are most sensitive um, to that muscle repair. Again, it really, it, it used to be kind of like what we call like the 30 minute anabolic window. So we used to believe that it was only really those 30 minutes where our muscles were most sensitive to it. But actually, we now know it's that muscle protein synthesis is happening over a much longer period, a 24, 48 hour period. So, yes, the period post exercise is important to help with that resynthesis. Um But actually, it's also what's happening over a much longer period as well. Um, So I would say if you're really wanting to optimize that repair process, trying to get something pretty soon after exercise, but then also thinking about getting it in regular intervals every, I don't know, every two to three hours. So maybe thinking about three, three, three meals, two to three protein based snacks. If we're thinking about the protein aspect. Same with the carbohydrates as well. I think people often think, oh, yeah, protein, that's all they need to think about post-exercise. But also talking about what we were thinking about earlier in terms of burning through that glycogen, we've also got to replace that. And again, that period post-exercise is really vital for that resynthesis process and kind of the, the, the rebuilding of the glycogen stores as well especially if you're training pretty soon after. So that's the key thing. Like if you're someone that's maybe not training for a couple of days, kind of the need to have something immediately after isn't quite as much. But if you're training again within eight hours, let's say, whether you're doing a double training session or you've trained in the evening and you're training again in the morning, kind of that need to get something pretty soon after is more vital because yeah, you've got less chance to basically rebuild both the muscles and the glycogen stores. Absolutely. Thank you, Faye. Gone are those days where you see people in the gym, it's like, quick, have my protein shake. I've just got off the off the weight section, gulp down and that's it. <laughs> and I think we're talking about athletes here anyway, you know. I mean, that's how it used to be, right? Um, but I think now there's much more awareness. So we've covered carbs in depth, well, as in as in much depth as we can on this podcast within the time limit. Protein, you understand these two areas are important. Now let's discuss fats because when you're an endurance runner or you're going for a long period of time, fats act as a fuel, don't they? They kick in. 
Yeah, definitely. So I think when it comes to endurance activity, like you mentioned before, like we have two main fuel sources. As we we're talking about earlier, we have the carbohydrate stores, um, which are really versatile, like pretty much any intensity of exercise, you'll still be t- kind of tipping into that glycogen, that carbohydrate stores. But then we also have our fat reserves, which we can use as an energy source as well. So generally, the lower the intensity of the exercise, the more fat that you'll kind of tap into to start to use as that energy when you are running. So lower intensity, predominantly fats, higher intensity, predominantly carbs. At all points, you'll use a combination of the both, but it's just kind of what's basically taken over as kind of the prime fuel source. Um, So it's not necessarily the dietary fats that we're consuming that are the energy source. It's the fat stores that we have within our body. Um, But still making sure that when we have adequate fat stores, but also the dietary fats that we consume, are not just to kind of important as the fuel source, but if we think about, again, thinking about the, the general population whether they're active or not we have we have demands for these dietary fats especially kind of the ones like omega freeze and the monounsaturated fats as well both both a concentration point an anti-inflammatory point a recovery point a hormonal production point as well and so it's really important that as athletes we still get adequate amounts of dietary fats within the diet Unlike carbs and and protein, there's not really kind of specific numbers to aim for in relation to dietary fat intake. But we'd probably say making sure you get at least kind of 20% of your total energy intake from kind of your dietary fats, focusing more so on like the monounsaturated and the the polyunsaturated ones. Yeah, so... For our listeners, um, like Faye said, you know, fats, even your brain, a lot of your brain is made up of fat, you know, these cellular membranes, things that keep your brain ticking and healthy, but it's the right types of fat. So 20%, not the butter, which is saturated fat or coconut oil, saturated fat. You want avocados, nuts, seeds, um, oily fish, you know, you want all of those, those sorts of fats in there. Now, I'm just thinking how much we can cover. There's so much depth to go on this topic. So hydration, I mean, I don't think we need to go into... <laughs> Too much depth on hydration. It's obvious hydration plays such a crucial, crucial role. And a little tip to check the urine. But let's talk about micronutrients very quickly because people don't think, oh, I'm going to become an athlete. What about vitamins and minerals? Yeah, totally. And I mean, thinking about endurance athletes in particular, I guess some of the main concerns that I would see especially because I work with quite a lot of female runners are things like iron deficiency things like b12 deficiency um, a lot of and again when it even comes to maybe people that are following like a vegan diet as well and um, things like omega-3 deficiency so it's like making sure that we're getting all those key micronutrients in there as well and just because they're micro doesn't mean that we need we don't need to think about them they're really really important i mean i am for example the reason why runners tend to be at high risk of that is because even things like foot impact on the ground that kind of again leads to more breakdown um so again there's a higher need um there so we need to make sure that we're getting plenty of iron rich foods within the diet whether that's your animal based things like red meat or even plant based um iron sources green leafy veggies 
making sure that we're making them a little bit more um, readily absorbed through things like vitamin C as well. Um, and also a lot of these micronutrients as well, things like B12, they help with the energy production side of things as well. So, I mean, we could go into each one in a lot of depth. Yeah, I don't know yeah. how much depth you want to talk no. about today. But <laughs> it's just important to make sure that we're not forgetting about the micronutrients. And again, as with the macronutrients, as an athlete, you have a higher demand for a lot of these different micronutrients. I mean, take your diet seriously, I think. I mean, I wish we had time to go into every single vitamin and mineral because they do all play a role. You know, you've got zinc, you've got selenium, you've got antioxidants for repair and all these sorts of protective qualities. But sadly, we don't have time to go into all of them. But please remember these. There's a lot of people I see that would come in the clinic and think, right, I'm an athlete or I'm going to be doing this, but I'm literally just eating carbohydrates on my protein and maybe a tiny bit of spinach or a tiny bit of broccoli. It is not enough. We need variety and we need colors. And actually supplementation is probably important, I'd say, for a lot of people if they're not meeting, if they're obviously not meeting their dietary needs, but you need to get tested by your GP if that's the case. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Faye, what would be your pre-race meal? So you've got loads of clients at the moment. And if you've got the London Marathon coming up, if someone listening, I know it's very hard to cherry pick and we're all unique, but what's an ideal pre-race day like, day look like? <laughs> um... What were my personal favourite or maybe just like recommendations? I can give you both if you'd like. Um, yeah, yeah. And yeah, give us a mix of the two. Okay, cool. I mean, if, if we think about more of like the actual, the science and the nutrients and actually what we want the composition of the meal to be like to begin with, um, pre, pre-race meal to begin with, this is not something that you should be trialling for the first time on race day. Um, when it comes to... Uh, training um for something like a marathon not only do we need to be training our legs and our muscles and our aerobic system we also want to be training our gut as well because coming back to the Paula Radcliffe um the runner's gut thing if you have unfamiliar foods on race day we don't know how your body is going to respond to that so we really want to make sure that the pre-race meal is something that you've tried a number of times so again in, in terms of the timing of this meal um 
I can't remember exactly what time the London Marathon starts at, but a lot of the time I tend to find that my clients are having to eat their breakfast relatively early in the morning for races like this, because again, we need that period of time before kind of between having our meal and starting the event where we just need to allow that food to digest a little bit again because we don't want a big load volume of food sitting in our stomach and our gut because that's just going to jostle around Um, and just to interject really quickly Faye um just to say this is when fasting probably isn't a good idea right you know the trend of fasting if you're an athlete and you've got to fit nutrients in there's just no space for it or time Definitely, definitely. And definitely not before a race either. Um, again, we, I'm sure we could even have a whole podcast on on fasting and um, yeah, I guess the whole idea behind like training low. Um, but yeah, we definitely don't want to be fasting before an event because that is really, I mean, the, the, the race day morning is really your last opportunity to get those carbohydrates, that glycogen store topped up. Um, so you have the, the full fuel tank going into that race. Um, so yeah, we probably want to be thinking um three to four hours before actually the the event itself having a kind of a high carbohydrate meal you're probably looking at between one and three grams of carbohydrate per kilogram of body weight so um yeah so that could be i mean i'm not going to give an example but yeah just maybe have a work out of what your current body weight is times that by one to three and that's kind of what you want to be looking for within the run-up to the event and so kind of priorities in the carbohydrates you'll also have a little bit of protein in there as well because having a little bit of protein pre-exercise has been shown to potentially support a little bit more so with the muscle protein synthesis after um, and then also a little bit of fat in there to make it a little bit more palatable and tasty as well but again we don't want to have too much fat within that pre-race meal because again that can compromise your body's ability to utilize your carbohydrate stores and also fat is very hard to digest so again it could cause some some gut issues if you have too much um so yeah kind of that balance of your, your kind of your protein your fats but mainly coming from your carbohydrates um so again we want to be focusing on the kind of the the lower fiber the higher sugar carbohydrates as well so um I had a client the other day who she was planning to have things like Cocoa Pops, which is that was like my ultimate childhood favorite cereal. So I was just like, yes, go for that. Um, so thinking things like Cocoa Pops, Rice Krispies and um, Corn Flakes. Um, so I guess the types of cereals, that again, typically uh, kind of in the general population, we maybe wouldn't advise. But in this scenario, again, context is really important. Um, so, yeah, those higher sugar cereals, maybe things like a white bagel with some jam or honey and banana even like some people quite like oats as well again depending on your gut whether that fiber is okay for you um so yeah they're, they're types of options that we might have maybe with a glass of orange juice as well those liquid carbohydrates um are really good to help top up that level when maybe we don't have the biggest appetite because yeah nerves are definitely something that you might experience pre-race so sometimes it can be quite hard to actually digest eat the food because of your appetite so those liquid carbohydrates whether it's like orange juice, um, beetroot juice, even like sports drinks as well can be quite helpful in those hours running up to kind of top up your glycogen stores. Yeah, thank you, Faye. No, it's, and this is just it. We can't be demonising foods in society. And I love the fact that one thing I love about sports nutrition is what a different entity it is to public health nutrition, but why food is actually so misunderstood and has a place for so many people in different ways. And that's another classic example, I think, of it. Now, 
I want to go into a few key areas here. I want to touch on caffeine. I want to touch on alcohol, sports drinks. Like, do we need them? Um, let's start with let's start with caffeine. I mean, it's it's a great pre workout for some, right? Or is it? <laughs> yeah, no, really, really good question. Um, so with caffeine, it is prob well, it is the most researched sports supplement out there, and there is only really a handful of supplements that have significant evidence to back up basically their effectiveness. Um, there are so, so, so many sports products on the market and I'd probably only say about five are really worthwhile considering. And caffeine is one of those ones that has the evidence to suggest the performance enhancing effect. So again, I would always kind of take this with a bit of caution though, that just because something has the research to back it up doesn't necessarily mean it's something that you should be doing. I mean, typically these these types of supplements will only really have one to three percent benefit like improvement benefits so it's not something that's going to necessarily make or break your performance especially if you're not considering the actual nutrition element or the training element first this is really the last thing you want to be thinking about that cherry on top of the cake no point focus on the supplements if you haven't considered the foundations of nutrition first but for those people that maybe do want that little boost that little one that little three percent improvement then things like caffeine could be helpful um so caffeine um I mean, I'm sure we've all kind of, I don't know if, well, if you drink caffeine um, or coffee or anything like that, you probably can imagine the impact that it can have. So caffeine, it kind of reduces your perceived effort. So it makes exercise feel easier. It can reduce the kind of the onset or delay the onset of fatigue as well. Um, it normally peaks in your blood around around 60, 30, 60 minutes after you've taken it as well. So kind of the timings of when you maybe have the caffeine would be important. We would probably suggest between kind of one and three milligrams um, per kilogram of body weight um, when it comes to the caffeine. Um, and it can come in lots of different forms. You could have it you know, in your coffee, you could have it as a pill, you could have it as like a, co a caffeine shot as well. So again, important to kind of try out the different types that you have in, like the form that it comes in, but then also the dose as well. Ultimately, we want to have the lowest dose possible to get the most effects. Everyone is very different in terms of how they tolerate caffeine. Some people might have the one milligrams, other people might have the three. Um, but I think it's also just really important to say that some people really don't tolerate caffeine well, like people can get anxious, they can get irritable, they can impact their sleep quality. So if you're having an event in the evening, maybe caffeine's not the best strategy for you, but in the morning, it's it, probably more effective, so it doesn't compromise your sleep. Um, so lots of things to think about there, but if done correctly, it can be really effective. I think being done correctly is, is the key point there, because also, I mean, shots of caffeine vary. You really, It's really hard, actually, to measure out exactly how much, which is why I think for most people, it's probably more effective, surely, to get a, a gel or something that's measured out with the exact quantity so you know what you're getting. Because there's some research that you go to different baristas, if you're just going to go down the high street and get a shot of coffee, it can vastly differ with how much you get and then how much of that you need to take. It's so difficult to work out. Um, Faye? alcohol a big no-no or can people have a little bit um really good question and i think ultimately it depends on what outcome you want to get like if you are someone that's super serious and you want to get a kind of the the best 
I don't know, the best time possible in a race, I would probably suggest avoiding it around competition. I mean, it can it can impact muscle protein synthesis. It can impact kind of the actual your body's ability to, again, synthesize that glycogen. So to replace your glycogen stores. Um, so I would say avoiding it around composition, a competition, serious training sessions is, is advisable if you really want to make the most out of that training session or that competition or that race. However, we're human. I mean, even athletes, we're human. We have social lives. We want to have fun. So if you want to enjoy the odd drink every now and again, absolutely fine. I think everything in moderation, one glass of wine, one g and it's not going to hurt you. But I would say if you do want to do that, maybe do avoid it around serious competition, serious training sessions. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, is it worth it at the end of the day? I think you've got to weigh up, you know, could the consequence be worth the consumption if, you, if it is a serious event? Or is it going to help you in a different way? I, I guess this is an individual, individual thing. Now, sports supplements we touched briefly on things that I would consider people don't realize as a supplement it's caffeine is how we've described it there as a sports aid it's what we call an ergogenic aid but what about things like oh I'm gonna I'm gonna bring it the questions that are everywhere BCAAs creatine because at Retrition Plus which is my supplements company we're food first approach and I personally would never sell BCAAs but obviously where do these things, how, how have they got such a voice, Faye? Why are they everywhere? Please break it down for me. So when it comes to BCAAs or another name for that, it's branch chain amino acids. Um, I would say most of the time, these are kind of a money-making thing. We certainly don't need them, especially if we're getting kind of quality protein across the day and we're getting enough protein across across the day. So the branch chain amino acids are the kind of the key amino acids that our body needs for that muscle protein synthesis. Um, so leucine in particular is really important to that. But we can get these amino acids from animal-based sources, so things like your, your poultry, your red meat, your fish, and we can get them from plant-based sources as well. So things like quinoa, maize, we can get some within things like wheat and soya as well. So we certainly don't need these branch chain amino acids, but I think the sports supplements um, industry has really kind of jumped onto this. And actually, yeah, I would always encourage my clients to focus on the food first approach when it comes to getting their protein intake. Absolutely. And then what about creatine? So I uh, might be perhaps one of the more useful, but um, interesting, interesting to hear your views on this. Yeah, certainly. Um, it, again, in the right context, creatine is one of the most backed up pieces of supplements out there as well. So again, this will ultimately depend on maybe the type of sport and exercise that you're doing, whether it will give you that advantage. Um, so as a bit of context, in our muscles, we have a very small amount of ATP, which is basically your energy currency that is needed to help with the contracting of your muscles to support your mitochondrial function and things like that. Um, so yeah, we have a very small amount of ATP within our muscles that can only really give us enough energy to last a couple of seconds. Creatine is really helpful to help again rapidly replenish that ATP. So when we're thinking about very short duration exercise, we're thinking about powerlifting, sprinting, creatine can be really helpful for that. 
in other sports, like endurance sports, there's a little bit of evidence to suggest it might help, but most of the research is done in kind of short duration, high impact exercise. Um, but again, got to focus on the food first. Like, again, it's really pointless taking a creatine supplement if you're not getting kind of the key nutritional foundations first. Thank you, Faye. Thank you. Because again, do the amount of people that message me on Instagram actually saying, oh, I've seen so-and-so selling a creatine supplement saying everyone should have it. And obviously that's, that's not the case again. It's so interesting, I think, how things get blown out of proportion. Now we have questions from our listeners. I have to just get these in because they're really, really good questions here. Now, let's start with Olivia. She says, um, I've heard that beetroot juice can help me run faster. Is this true? Oh, okay, cool. So again, talking about maybe that handful of supplements that have evidence to back it up, beetroot juice is one of those. So beetroot juice, the the evidence comes from the fact that beetroot contains nitrates. Um, so you can get you can get it from nitrates from other sources as well, like things like your green leafy veggies. But kind of to get the level of kind of the nitrates that we need, you'd need a very large quantity of that green leafy veggies. Whereas you can take a very condensed uh, beetroot juice shot that gives you the same amount. And when we have things like beetroot juice, it increases the nitrates within the blood, which is then converted to nitric oxide, and the benefit of this is that nitric oxide causes vasodilation so it causes our blood vessels to basically widen which means that we're able to get more blood more oxygen more nutrients flow into the working muscle so as you can probably imagine that can help in terms of again things like more muscle contraction reduce it uh, like delaying the onset of fatigue uh, and things like that so again there is benefits around having some beetroot juice brilliant oh, that's a good one to know everyone um i don't love a beetroot juice but i can have it if i mix it with like carrot and ginger you know those kind of juices that you get i, I do like those um but straight oh i don't know um <laughs> Maisie has said can I get enough protein if I follow a plant-based diet to help with my recovery after a long run? I'm also a fan of protein powder. Yeah, no, good question. And yes, it, it is possible to get sufficient amount of protein from a plant-based diet. It does probably take a little bit more forward thinking. You might need to do kind of some food combinations as well, because when we're thinking about kind of the, the again, the amino acids, um, Animal sources tend to contain the full profile of amino acids that are needed for that muscle protein, that muscle protein repair, that muscle protein synthesis. Whereas some of the, the plant-based proteins might be missing normally kind of maybe one or two of those key amino acids that we might need. So kind of combining some protein sources together can be quite helpful. So maybe rather than just having one protein source on the plate, you might decide to have it with two, like for example, having beans and rice. Um, just to help you get that full amino acid profile. Also, the level of protein in the plant-based sources tends to be lower as well. So you do need to have more, like a larger, larger portion size of them as well. Um, this is where protein powders could be quite helpful just to kind of top it up. Um, so if you are falling short on your protein intake when you've worked out your requirements and you need something that's just a little bit more convenient to help you get those requirements, and that's where a protein powder could be helpful. But I would always say don't protein powders are a supplement to the diet. So don't let them replace your foods. Use them in addition to your diet. 
perfect advice and and I think we've got time for one more and that's I think we'll pick from Tom because it's marathon season I'm running a marathon this year now when should I start focusing on my nutrition because this is such a good question do you do it from the get-go or should people kind of start a little bit nearer the time Good question. And I would say as soon as really you start thinking about your training, that is a time to start thinking about your nutrition as well, because nutrition is not there just to help you maximize your performance in the race day. It's there to also help you adapt and become really strong and speedy and everything else within training as well. So if you're focused on your nutrition whilst you're focused on your training, you're going to maximize your training as well as the performance in the actual race day as well. And also, as I mentioned before, like we don't want to be going into race day trying a completely new strategy. So um, pretty much every time when I'm working with an athlete, in the run-up to an endurance event like a marathon, we will practice their race day strategy multiple times before we actually get to the event as well. So they have the confidence in knowing what types, what amounts, the timings of the food that they're consuming. So yeah, they're not going into race day thinking, what what am I doing and how do I know what's going to happen here? Yeah, absolutely. Faye, that's fantastic. Now, oh, I think we've just got... Do you know, I want to chuck this last question in there um, because I do think it's an important one. So quickly, Jane has said, my PT is offering me a sports nutrition package alongside my training. Should I follow their advice or get a specialised sports nutritionist? Don't get me wrong. There is some amazing PTs out there. And we've worked a lot of, with a lot of great PTs alongside the clinic that really kind of are an expert in giving training programs and are really good at staying within their scope of practice when it comes to nutrition. PTs, that they're, they're allowed and they can give general nutrition advice, but they really shouldn't be given specifics. They shouldn't be given meal plans because at the end of the day, um, I mean, people like myself have studied for a very long time to really understand the physiology of the body and kind of the biology of the body, the biochemistry of the body, the psychology impact as well. So without kind of that knowledge, it's really kind of unethical to kind of write meal plans for people without understanding actually the inner workings of the body and also the behavior change aspect as well. So. I would say, please don't, yes, get general advice from your PT when it comes to nutrition. Like they're more than happy to kind of give you guidance in line with the Eat Well Guide and things like that. But when it comes to much more specifics in terms of working out requirements, designing meal plans, that is really where a sports nutritionist is is needed. Thank you, Faye. No, that's perfect. Now, we're going to move on to the fact or fiction round. Are you ready? I am ready. Let's do it. Okay, here we go. So, having a lower body fat percentage automatically means you're healthier. I'm just trying to think what the answer is. The fiction. I was going to say false. (laughs) (laughs) False. Love it. (laughs) Fiction. Um, It's the same thing. Uh, You need more sleep when endurance training to aid recovery. Fact, yep. Oh, gosh. Sleep at the moment, something I can dream of. Um, Bananas help replace electrolytes lost when we sweat. Yeah, true. Brilliant. Great. Fat is the body's preferred source of fuel for longer distance exercise. Yeah. I'd say fat, but then also we need carbohydrates in there as well. Yes. You must consume protein within 30 minutes of finishing the exercise. No, fiction all about context maybe if you're training again pretty soon after fasted cardio will make you lose body fat fiction all of needs to be in a total energy deficit for that to happen not just fasted cardio 
Running is the best form of exercise for people wanting to improve their fitness. Mm, no, fiction, not necessarily. Any form of exercise that you can be consistent with. Brilliant. Chocolate milk is good recovery food. Yes, I love chocolate milk. Fact. Good combination <laughs> of both your, your hydration, your carbohydrates and your protein. Yummy. And with a little bit of nut butter, delicious as well. I will say that's a yummy, yes. yummy one. Great. <laughs> um, protein is used for ATP production. Yeah, well, help, not ATP production as such, but it helps with mitochondrial um, building. So, And they help produce the ATP. So. Perfect. You can outrun a poor diet. No, unfortunately not. You can't. Fiction. <laughs> <laughs> yay oh my gosh so fast and so concise Faye. honestly some of these questions I thought let's just chuck them in <laughs> I know I wanted to expand on them all but <laughs> this is just it with and do you know what's so interesting I think um of course that does wrap up the episode today um but we do finish with uh food for thoughts and I think mine today would be I love talking to Faye about all things nutrition and it's been such a pleasure for me to see also, Faye, your, your journey in the world of nutrition, but the knowledge you now have, and I, I think um, a lot of people underestimate the knowledge needed in the world of sports nutrition. They genuinely don't take it as seriously as perhaps perhaps it should be taken. And again, how unique we are really came across from you. You know, caffeine may be beneficial for some, but not for others. It could interrupt their digestion on performance day. The carbohydrate thing, think about the amount of fiber could also cause a dodgy belly just as much as fuel you. So it's it's so interesting how it's not black and white. And I'd love you to give everyone a nice take home food for thought today. Okay. Um, I actually wanted to touch on one of the, the questions that you asked asked in fact or fiction because it's not something that we really touched on but something that has come up a lot in clinic at the moment with the run-up to things like the marathon and a lot of endurance people training for these events is that there is still that belief that thinner is faster and the truth is is that being lighter on the scales does not mean that you're going to perform better the truth is is that when when you strive to be lighter you can compromise your performance. You're not giving your body sufficient energy. You're not giving your body sufficient micronutrients, hydration, which ultimately is so essential for fueling your body. So actually by striving for thinness, you could be compromising your performance. So I would always just say, rather than focusing on the scales, think about what your body is capable of, because actually that's much more important for your performance and the outcome rather than what a number on the scale says. Faye, that was a brilliant take-home message. Thank you for emphasising that. And again, I guess with calories, we didn't actually touch on this. One last, sorry, one last food for thought. Calories and sports <laughs> nutrition. Important in context of sports or not so much anymore? Yeah, having adequate amount of energy, and basically calories are energy, having adequate amount of calories and energy is so, so, so important in sport. Because as I mentioned before, like if you're not getting enough energy, you're going to run the risk of getting that relative energy deficiency, you're going to compromise your performance, you're going to compromise your mood and everything else as well. So getting enough energy, getting enough calories is really important. I would say when it comes to working with clients, there might be some clients that, yes, we do have a look at calories, but we also look at the bigger picture as well, where we focus on the micronutrients and everything else and the macronutrients. However, there's also some clients that, again, maybe 
they've maybe got a quite a poor relationship with food where actually focusing on the calories and the numbers is not appropriate. And there's ways of making sure that we're getting sufficient amount of energy without focusing on the number. Um, so again, it really depends on the person that I'm working with, whether that's something that we have a look at. Faye, thank you so much for coming on Food for Thought. That was brilliant. I've loved this episode and we've really just skimmed the surface. So if anyone wants to learn more about their sports nutrition and what you're up to, where can they go? Yeah, totally. Um, I'll have to come back and do a whole new episode with you. That'd be great. Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah, you can find me at um, mainly on Instagram. So that kind of directs uh, you to other areas as well. But my Instagram handle is faye.nutrition. Perfect. Faye, thank you so much for coming on today for Food for Thought. Thanks, Marie. If you're enjoying Food for Thought, hope so, (laughs) you'll love the upcoming episodes. So if you don't already, please subscribe. Make sure that you click to be the first to hear it each Monday. There's a lot of podcasts out there now, and I really hope that we're maintaining the ultimate research and the ultimate guest to make sure that you're getting the best experience possible. So if you're having a good time and you're learning lots, please do leave a review if you can, so we can reach those higher highs in the charts and ultimately get to reach more people. That's what it's all about. And for more information about my best-selling books, the science of nutrition, of course, uh, deliciously healthy pregnancy, the Retrition Clinic, recipes, so much more, just head over to retrition.com and follow me at Retrition on all social media platforms, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube.